the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you kindly. Good afternoon. Five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m. on your basic Tuesday, the 26th of January. And, uh... Once again, great to have you on board for another two hours as we address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Just discussing here before we came on the air tonight with uh, our engineer and uh, producer, uh, Nate, regarding the weather. And it looks like we're finally about to get a little bit of serious rain tonight through tomorrow and could be as much as um, three and a half inches in some parts of the Bay Area. And we're Certainly grateful for that and what a contrast it is to the Pacific Northwest uh, where they'd love to have a half a dozen of our dry dry days. And meanwhile, we're desperate for a few of their wet ones. We need to do a trade deal here between the Pacific Northwest and Northern California to see if we can't exchange a little bit of sunshine for a little bit of rain because heaven knows we got plenty of one and not enough of the other. And I guess they would argue just the opposite. All right. Well, you didn't tune in for a weather forecast, but there you go. (laughs) There you got one anyway. Hey, coming up later on in tonight's program, Bob Zadek is going to join us. Talk a bit about uh, the ramp-up of a call for the, uh, I, I guess it would be the, the, the governor's version of an impeachment. Well, no, not technically. A recall election is not quite an impeachment. But that said, there is, of course, a growing hue and cry for the governor to be impeached, much of it surrounding what many consider to be the overreaching power of the governor's office in relationship to dealing with COVID-19. I'm trying to figure out how it is as the call for that recall election heats up, why suddenly we've just flipped the switch and we no longer need to be sheltering in place. I know the argument is, well, we've seen a significant increase in the number of available ICU beds, but yeah, that's because everybody died that was in them. And so that doesn't mean that we've got COVID under control, just means that the big spike that we knew was going to come on the heels of people not following proper safety protocols during Thanksgiving would show up. And I'm going to bet as we see the government struggling to deal with the distribution of the vaccinations, even as the president is calling for the acquisition of another 100 million in short order, that uh, this is not behind us. And I know everybody's eager to see it behind us, but uh, I think it's a long way off. We're going to talk about, though, many of the overreaching attempts by not just our governor, but governors across the country in exercising so-called emergency powers to deal with a crisis that is now 10 months old. Hardly an emergency anymore. Why haven't legislatures stepped up to the plate or courts in dealing with the overreach? We'll talk about that when Bob Zadek joins us later on in tonight's 
program. I want to start off the conversation here tonight, if I might, on a, a bit of a sticky issue, and that is the matter of First Amendment rights and the flag. And we know certainly that there's been many discussions about uh, if you burn a flag, are you exercising your First Amendment rights? Isn't that disrespect of that symbol? And even myself, I have mixed feelings on it. I think the right to burn it is um, ironically enshrined in the Constitution, and though I get very upset when somebody does it. But the other issue in relationship to these uh, in symbols is, of course, there's not just one flag. It's not just the old uh, glory stars and tribes. There are flags for all 50 states in the Union. Many municipalities and cities even have their own flags. And, of course, you have fraternal and service organizations and, you know, just about anybody who would hire a graphic design artist could have their own flag, I suppose, if we want. We'll soon be flying the Roberts flag, no doubt, off the roof of our building. <laughs> But meanwhile, what of the case out of Boston, Massachusetts, where ironically um, it seems as if the um, First Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Friday that uh, as much as any flag is welcome to be flown um, over City Hall in Boston, one that can't be flown is the Christian flag. Why exactly is that? Brad Dacus joins us now, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, uh, Counselor, this is a bit of a, a sticky one in that, at one level, we certainly want to make sure that our First Amendment rights for freedom of expression are protected and that the ability to express that through, well, quite frankly, flying the flag in a place where 260-something other types of flags have been flown over City Hall in Boston down through the years, uh, critically important. And yet some might stop and say, well... Do we have to put any limits on this? Uh, can the local wing of the Nazi party ask for the swastika to be flown? And what of this bizarre decision by the First Circuit Court of Appeals? Tell us more about this. Yeah, the First Circuit Court of Appeals uh, basically held that cities have the right to fly whatever flag they wish. They uh, can, if they like that flag, or they like the, what that flag represents, they can let that flag fly. They can deny those who they wish, uh, totally at their discretion. Period. Well, here's the rub. Here's the problem. They've allowed Craig all these different flags to be flagged. They don't deny any flags except a Christian flag or a re religious flag. So they're saying any other flag, any other speech. They've accepted, they will, it looks like they will accept, but they won't accept it if it's a religious reflection flag, of, you know, reflecting on some faith of, of some kind, like the Christian flag. That is what we would call state hostility to religion, actually a violation of the Establishment Clause, and that's why I believe personally the Supreme Court is going to take this up and it's going to reverse the First Circuit Court opinion, uh, First Circuit Court of, uh, decision. Yeah, you almost think if they're going to do one for one, they really need to open it up for all. But what if that slippery slope where, you know, you and I certainly would agree on this topic. However, if they polled me tomorrow and said, yes, a group of neo-Nazis have appealed to City Hall. They'd like to have the uh, the swastika flown 
uh, above City Hall. I'd probably draw a line at that. So how do we deal with this delicate issue? Is it simply the rub that they happen to have a problem because ironically, and I think this was noted during the the case that uh, one of the city officials had indicated that if the application to fly the flag did not include the word Christian in it, it would have been approved without a second thought. So a lot of this seems to be focused on the religiosity of it all. I'm just wondering if maybe this is a broader case where if the city can't can't be show parity to everybody that maybe nobody gets to fly a flag. I don't know. Yeah, the city has several options. One is uh, they can just say, okay, we're going to fly uh, the, you know, the United States flag, the state flag, and the city flag. Done. Uh, they can do that, or they can adopt a policy about flying flags that is not prejudicial and exclusive against religious flags representing religious groups. Otherwise, it's state, the state being hostile, saying, we're going to acknowledge all other groups out there um, you're all a part of our community. We're not going to acknowledge those parts of our community that are religious or have a religious background. And that's the problem. If they say we have a policy, uh, we're not going to put up any flag that is reflective of uh, past uh, terrorism or, uh, you know, a, a, of a, uh, a Holocaust or, you know, they have some kind of a criteria or, or you know, reflective of, uh, of you know hatred towards a, a you know an, an ethnic group or something, but they, they can't just say we're going to fly every flag uh, except those flags re- representing you religious people. Um, that is, I believe, uh, unconstitutional on its face. So uh, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board in the end, I believe, and uh, and just have a different policy. Yeah, it certainly seems as if they walked into it uh, in this case, whether it's intentional or otherwise. I, I just don't see any way in which you can keep this policy in such a fashion that it provides parity for all without suddenly at some point down the road opening up a legitimate hornet's nest. I mean, you, didn't, you wouldn't want the flag of the KKK flying. You probably wouldn't want the Confederate flag. You certainly, as I suggested, I think most people of faith and conscience wouldn't want the, the swastika flag flying up there. But the fact that they've, they've just chosen to suggest, chosen that the Christian flag is taboo, and then it makes you wonder if somebody else from a different religion came later on down the road, would the answer be different and therein really is where the the discriminatory nature of this becomes problematic right and i personally think craig that cities when they fly flags they need to represent the city or in the state or you know federal government whenever they start selecting we're going to fly a flag of this group and this group but not of this group then they're basically communicating that uh, we're not a nation of of people who are we were we're all created equal that some are more equal than others, some deserve recognition, some don't. And that is a bad policy uh, in addition to being just uh, contrary uh, to the fabric of, of who we are as a nation and our whole concept of, of, of liberty and equality. And undoubtedly, as you, um, I think, suggest, the minute we have um, the the sense of one being elevated above the other, or as more, more to your points, some are more equal than others, <laughs> which I don't think that works out right. mathematically either, then we really run into some problems. Uh, would you anticipate this then being fast-tracked before the Supreme Court in short order? 
this could be a while. This could be they could. This could be months and months before they decide whether they're going to take it up. Uh, we may not have a decision on this actually for another two or, or you know maybe two years. Uh, oh, wow. Because I don't think the Supreme Court is going to see this as urgent as some other matters. But um, I do think they're going to take it up, and, and they'll they only take up one percent of their cases. But I think this is going to fall in that one percent. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch. It may be a while, but uh, we'll continue to watch this story. We appreciate you bringing us up to speed. And, and meanwhile, something that, that no doubt every municipality that has a policy of this sort needs to look at. You're either going to provide parity and fairness for everyone, or maybe you just need to keep it simple and stay out of trouble. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information available online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 516. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. And uh, here, 20 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock, I, I kind of alluded at the top of the hour tonight's program some of the issues related to COVID-19 as we are even seeing some pretty stunning numbers, the latest of which indicated that in the United States alone, um, wow, we're looking at a total of 435,000 deaths. And we'll, we'll, we'll be at a half million before the one-year anniversary of the real impact, the start of the impact of COVID even reaches us. And, and in the meanwhile, of course, we've seen communities, municipalities, states, the feds all struggle with trying to come up with some sort of an answer to all of this. Ironically, there's an interesting comparison between some of the states that have had some of the most lax rules and protocols in addressing COVID-19 and others that have some of the most stringent. Take, for example, on the most stringent side, states like California and New York, where in spite of many of the controls and protocols put in place, we're still seeing 38,141 deaths in California, 42,812 in New York, and yet a state like Texas that has been very open, very lax almost since the beginning, well, They've got 35,657 deaths, even though they have 10 million less people than the state of California. Leaving an interesting quandrum here, conundrum, and that is that the most conservative or closed state and even the most open state pretty much show the same results in terms of controlling COVID-19. Translation, utter failure. So meanwhile, what of some of the fallout of this, sort of the unseen damages, at least at this point, which really goes to the heart of the question of gubernatorial emergency powers and, and whether or not, maybe even in a broader sense, that the executive branch at the state or the federal level just simply has too much power and has been allowed to run without any real checks and balances for way too long. Let's unpack this as we talk with talk show host and best-selling author Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, syndicated across the U.S., heard locally in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Information about Bob and his great work online at bobzadek.com. And 
Bob, as always, we appreciate you carving out some time for us. Uh, this is a tough one because at one level we recognize this is an unprecedented health concern that we have been facing. We know that nobody has any clear-cut answers. And yet, looking back over the past 10 months or so, one has to wonder, the governor exercising emergency powers, but how long does this emergency last? And have we almost seen an un, uh, unended or, or open-ended approach to this, rather, where, well, just as long as they'd say it's an emergency, I guess it's an emergency, and they can la-di-da, do whatever they want, however they want, without regard to the impact on little things like, oh, I don't know, <laughs> Bill of Rights and constitutional uh, protections. Well, Craig, first of all, and most importantly, thank you so much for inviting me to, to share some time with you and your guests and your uh, audience this evening. I always appreciate the invitation, so thank you so much. Uh, as to your question, uh, you uh, one brief comment, if I may. You, in comparing California and Texas, you pick Texas by way of example of a state that was less draconian in removing and taking away citizens' rights. You, you mentioned that Texas was more lax. Lax is kind of a negative word. I would say Texas is more free, not more lax. Uh, that's the difference. The degree of freedom that Texas allowed its citizens, freedom to be as safe, stay home, wear a mask, as people want, or free and go out into the world and go to church and visit family and go to a wedding. That's merely the exercise of freedom. It's not, it's not a question of the state being lax. The state is saying every citizen is able to decide for themselves how to organize their life. We are allowed to take risks if we want. We can skydive. We can ski. We can do dangerous occupations and activities, or we cannot. We make the decision. So just a comment. I wanted to jump to the, uh, the side of my fellow Americans in Texas, where they are simply more free than we are living under the authoritarian rule of Governor Newsom. Now, as to, you also wondered, Craig, if that, how much power the states have. As you correctly said in your introduction, the issue is not how much power the state has, it's how much power the executive has. So this whole conversation is about where does the power lie? Our country was built on the premise that far and away the most important branch of government or the most powerful is a legislature. Why? Because the legislature is answerable directly and quickly to the people. They get elected. They are representatives. They represent us, and that word means something. And all power starts in the legislature. The governor only has the power which is given to the governor by the legislature. Other than that, the governor or the county or the county executive or the mayor doesn't have any power whatsoever. And you mentioned emergency. The most overused word in the past nine months. When what makes something an emergency? Emergency means something for which requires 
immediate action, a fire, a natural disaster, a flood. There's no time to convene the legislature. Governor Newsom, because we are in California and we are talking about Newsom this moment, Governor Newsom, the emergency nature of the virus went away eight months ago. For the first month, I'll concede it was an emergency. We had something coming on, happening, that was happening fast, and nobody was quite sure what to do. But there, was, there have been eight months for the legislature to act, to hold hearings, take testimony, hear from experts in public, and decide what to do. The emergency hasn't existed in California for eight months by my count. So Newsom is not exercising emergency power. He's exercising raw power. And that's why we're in the pickle we're in now. And, of course, what's ironic about this, Robert, is, again, as you suggest, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, at the start of this, when we were still trying to figure out what this was, what it meant, how powerful could it be, how destructive could it be, uh, having the executive branch at any level, level, the mayor, the state, the federal government, act in a fashion to deal with it in that initial crisis moment, I don't think most Americans have a problem with that. Where it becomes difficult and challenging is when we continue to define this as an emergency months and months later, and I think the initial idea of, well, in the opening moments of an emergency, there is not necessarily the practical time to gather together the legislature, to write bills, to debate, to vote. I mean, these are processes that, you know, the old adage, it's like making sausage uh, may taste wonderful, but you never want to watch it done. Uh, but in the case like this, we've gone on and on and on and on and and. You know, at one level, I guess we could point a finger of suspicion at the legislative branch and say, hey, how come you guys aren't doing your job? But even the judicial branch has really failed to rein in these powers. And what I think is particularly troubling is that if we see this go unchecked under this set of circumstances for so long, who's to say that something else couldn't be defined as an emergency and even more draconian measures put into place. I mean, there really is potentially no limit to this if this if this overreach of power is not checked now. Am I right? You're 100% right, and you're looking accurately and clearly into the future. What we have experienced where governors once experienced the seduction and the intoxication of all of this unchecked power, it kind of feels cool. And I think, Craig, you are accurately predicting the following. We will experience, at least in states with authoritarian executives at the top, New York, California, Michigan, and many others, what we will experience is you are going to see governors all of a sudden notice there is an opioid emergency and that requires emergency powers in the governor you will see them declaring we have a racism emergency and that requires unusual powers of the executive you will find there is a power with rampant 
hate speech, and they will declare a hate speech emergency. And if you think this is far-fetched, you are wrong, because there is no longer a COVID emergency, but yet there is one because governors declare it to be such, and that power is, un- is unchecked. Once the, once the genie is out of the bottle and governors can get away with governors and other chief executives simply declaring an emergency and then the legislature letting it happen, we're done. It's all over, at least in states and counties and cities with authoritarian leaders at the top. So I don't think I'm being far-fetched. I do not think I'm being um, uh, hysterical about it. But I fear the, the unchecked exercise of extra-constitutional powers, and nobody seems to care. And I worry that the citizenry is too placid in not expressing their displeasure by balloting, by initiatives, by moving, expressing it in the ways with all of the civil tools that we have, that's the only way governors will be taught they cannot continue to exercise these extraordinary powers. And I think to the heart of your concern, Bob, that this is not simply a question of an overreach in relationship to singularly the COVID-19 scenario, but it goes well beyond that. And in fact, the broader question of overreach of executive branch powers um, has been a growing concern, certainly by uh, myself and, and many others out there, as we see, for example, at the federal level, presidents just deciding, here I am, now I'm going to undo everything that was created by my predecessor. In some cases, I'm going to undo the will of the people through laws that have been passed or legislation that was enacted through Congress and say, no, I've got a different idea about this. When we come back, I want to talk more about the danger of an unchecked executive branch and how we got here in the first place. Bob Zadek is with us today, best-selling author, talk show host. You can catch his program every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. here on the Pacific Coast in San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. The Answer, our sister station. Bob's got great resources, links to past broadcasts, podcasts, uh, information about guests. You certainly can order his books online as well. Whole plethora available to you by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B Z-A-D-E-K dot com. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, how it is it that the executive branch has been able to come into so much seemingly where are the other two branches? That is this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Since, uh, well, really March of last year, well over 10 months now, exercising like, the executive branch throughout the country of uh, powers, some say necessary, others say going too far to the point of being draconian in an effort to try and stem, stem the spread of COVID-19. But how much is too much? And maybe the broader question for our guest tonight, talk show host, author, constitutional expert, Bob Zadek, is simply this. How did we get here? Now, 
Bob, clearly as the founding fathers um, envisioned in the creation and establishment of our government, they saw amongst the three branches this system of checks and balances. So the executive branch um, is, is in a position where uh, it can engage in the creation of law through, well, I shouldn't say law, it can, it can initiate executive orders if the legislative branch is not getting their job done. The legislature can certainly come in and uh, change the law or pull funding if they don't like what the executive branch has done. Um, if the legislature passes a law that's unconstitutional, the judiciary branch can come in and, uh, and override that. So there is this system of checks and balances to make sure that not only is everybody keeping an eye on everybody, ostensibly keeping them all honest, wink, wink, but also making sure that nothing gets bogged down by any one branch. If that be the case, then, are we looking at a tremendous, uh, how should I phrase it, MIA by the uh, legislative and judicial branch in cases like California, where the governor has been exercising these quote-unquote emergency powers going on nearly a year and nobody said a word? Well, um, it's a great question, Craig, and the answer is very straightforward. Remember, all power, um, the president or the governor in the Jeff News conversation only has the powers given to the governor by the Constitution. And those are quite modest. And then the powers given to the governor by the legislature. So that's where the power starts, where it's supposed to start. The representatives, an important word, who represent you and I in the writing of laws. Okay, so the power starts with the legislature. The legislature quite sensibly says, we make the rules. That's our job. However, sometimes you need fast action, and we can't always be on the spot to solve immediate problems. I used an analogy recently of a night watchman when the people the workers go home at night and leave the factory they leave in charge a night watchman the night watchman is the only one there he is there in case something happens and the people in charge are home asleep he is there to deal with the emergency of the moment until the proper people, the workers, come to work the next morning. The police get there. People get there to take charge. It's temporary, very temporary. And that makes sense. You wouldn't leave nobody in charge, so you leave a skeleton staff at night. The, the governor, in an emergency, is the night watchman. He is there because he doesn't have to call a meeting and get a quorum. Something happens. We have to have somebody to act until help gets there. And so the governor is assigned the task of dealing with an emergency. And every state has various emergency statutes that bestow upon the governor powers that normally reside in the legislature. But it is only for an emergency. An emergency means needs immediate attention. There was a time that the COVID attack 
needed immediate attention, and there was no time for the legislature to act. So the governor, using emergency powers, acts. But usually those statutes give the governor power to declare an emergency, and for 30 days, the governor has these emergency powers. 30 days, not 10 months. But what the governors have done is, based upon the statute, they say, okay, my first emergency is up. I'm going to declare a new emergency for the next 30 days and the next 30 days and the next 30 days. Instead of it being 30 days until the legislature acts, it's forever until the governor, who has given the power, gives it back. And when executive, it is very rare for anybody in government to surrender power once they have it. I defy our listeners to think of even one instance when anybody in government said, I am giving back to the people the power over them that I had. When has it ever happened? Craig, I'll answer your question. It was George Washington who after who after the war and he could have been king he gave back his sword i'm going back to mount vernon when king george the third heard that washington the general who created a who helped create a country gave back his sword king george the third in england said if that be true washington is the greatest of all men it was that astonishing to a king that anybody would in power would surrender power. That's how rare it is. So it has what's happening now, Craig, in the country, there are about 30 states that are looking into this and are passing laws today, not California, but 30 other states where they are saying we will now limit, having learned from the virus, we are going to limit the power of the governor to renew the emergency. We are going to require the governor to surrender the power to do what George Washington did voluntarily, surrender the power he got or she got from the emergency, and return it to the people. And my hope is that California, who, if the voters cherish their freedom, will demand their representatives do the same thing in California. And this is bipartisan, because even if the democratically controlled uh, state house in, Sac in Sacramento, they love the fact that it's a Democratic governor, I have two comments. Number one, it's not always going to be that way, and you could have a Republican exercising that power. And number two, get rid of Newsom, and what are you worried about? You'll have another Democrat anyway, somebody you like just as much, so we have to send a message. So the recall petition for Newsom is so important to send a message that, no, Governor Newsom, you cannot exercise this power. You're out of control. It's not about turning government over to Republicans. Who knows what's going to happen? It's simply about punishing an executive who had too much power and was too intoxicated by it, and we simply say, return that power to the people. Bob, before we go, let me ask you one final question. Is this, uh, on, on the broader face, an issue that we need to look at 
at the federal level as well. And I asked that question because we saw day one President Biden signing a bunch of executive orders. I did a little bit of research going back over the past several presidents. And um, some of these guys a bit more restrained than others. Oddly enough, and this kind of surprised me, uh, between Clinton, Bush 43, uh, Obama and President Trump. It was actually Obama showed, uh, at least in terms of the average number of executive orders per year, the most restraint with only 34 executive orders per year. Uh, Trump has got the record at 55 a year, more than one a week. And at some level, I have to wonder, be it Democrat or Republican, has somehow the executive branch, the state level or the federal level, just simply come into un too much unchecked power? not come into it they were given to it it was given to the executive by the legislature and there is a reason because a legislator's primary function is to get reelected the way to get reelected is to not do anything controversial and to just enjoy the perks and the free parking and all that comes with it and free haircuts and all that stuff therefore they are perfectly happy to let the governor get the president receive the heat, and they coast along and get reelected because they don't make any important decisions. Therefore, nobody yells at them. So they pass sweeping Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act uh, legislation that has a nice sound to it. They leave the administration and writing of the regulations to the executive. So the executive, the president, gets all the heat, and they just say, we passed beautiful legislation, and we get reelected. That's the very unhappy situation we are in with a legislature that is too willing to abdicate their power to the executive and to the judiciary, and they just get reelected in the process. Yeah. And sadly, in the end, it's the average American left holding the bag. We're going to dive into this issue deeper on another day. We're out of time for today. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show. I invite you to check him out. Enjoy the program every Sunday morning. It's thoughtful, insightful. A lot of thought leaders participate in this program, and you'll certainly gain much by tuning in Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. to the Bob Zadek Show on 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station here in the Bay Area. And again, uh, resources and details about Bob's program are on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. All right, let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. challenges in relationship to the battle for the unborn. And while certainly we've made tremendous strides over the many recent years, doesn't negate the fact that since the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bowden decisions that were released just, um, just exactly 48 years ago last Friday, we've seen 62 million children succumb to Abortion, 62 million. Let's get a look at what the next four years may indeed look like 
in the abortion battle. We're joined by Brian Johnson, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, the broadcast coming your way every Sunday, oh, Saturday, Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And Brian, as always, we appreciate you taking some time to be with us. We talked briefly last week about uh, what may potentially be happening with things like the Mexico City policy. Another one as we mm -hmm. kind of look to the next four years ahead that uh, may be at risk is the Hyde Amendment, which of course in 1976 mm -hmm. was passed that would put in place uh, restrictions particularly related to the issue of how abortions are paid for and where that's coming from um, in in relationship to things like Medicare, Medi uh, Me Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, yeah. Just give us some insights, if you would, in terms of where we might see things uh, begin to turn. Well, Craig, as you know, this has been just an extraordinary turn of events, and even leading up to the election, how significant that the president did both put forward and have confirmed Amy Coney Barrett. I think we need to remember that, that the presence of Amy Coney Barrett spells a change in the weather, you might say, at the Supreme Court. No guarantees, but we have never seen such opportunities, and yet suddenly now things have been turned around just like that. And with the Biden-Harris administration, they're committed to unlimited abortion, and as you rightly point out, from the beginning, abortion industry seeks to superimpose itself without discussion. And the Hyde Amendment since 1976 has been a hindrance to federal funding of abortion and has continued now, but is under direct assault. Now, today, I believe it was 115 members of Congress have signed a, a statement. They're standing for Hyde, and we're going to see an assault on the Hyde Amendment. But really what that represents is the superimposition by the federal government on any health care, the promotion of abortion, and without restriction. So this is also the, that was the plan with Obamacare. That's the plan with this proposed Medicare for All, that the federal government just underwrite the industry. So there's going to be a real fight. The other fight you're going to see, and you've seen this before, if you're killing human babies and just not talking about it, then what's a lie? What's wrong? A white lie. There's nothing wrong with lying if you're killing human beings. And one of the things they're lying about now is what's called the Equal Rights Amendment. And you remember that from the 70s. And the ERA is ostensibly to give women equal rights across the board. But in it, inherent in it, is the right to an abortion. And so if the ERA were to be resurrected, they didn't have the votes. They didn't go through the necessary states to qualify. But they're trying to change the rules. And they want to be able to have Equal Rights Amendment passed now. And that basically would superimpose a right to an abortion. So this is coming at us strong and hard from this new administration. We have kept them back, but this is going to be a very challenging, it's at least two years, until we can get Congress back and uh, possibly four years with this new Biden-Harris administration. You know, what? what's particularly, I think, frustrating, Brian, beyond the notion of significant amounts of taxpayer dollars once again flowing into the coffers 
of an organization like Planned Parenthood. But, but there's another arena that I've had increasing concern over that I fear is not gaining nearly enough attention, and that is the fact that according to information that we have through organizations like the CDC and, and verified through the um, essentially the propaganda arm of uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, the Guttmacher Institute, which uh, at the end of the day, Guttmacher has proven to be fairly reliable when it comes to uh, just the raw numbers, statistics, and that mm -hmm. is to see that so-called uh, uh, abortifacients or RU486 type abortifacients are now accounting for well over half of the abortions in America today. It, it's kind of quiet. It's below the radar screen. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. it may not involve the doctor, but it still involves the loss of a life. Are we seeing any any effort uh, being made in a concerted fashion to try and pass more laws that would also restrict the use of this chemical-type abortion? Yes, there are states that are doing that. Our state is not, as you know, because of uh, the previous governor and now this current governor. Uh, RU-46 is being distributed at college campuses. And the problem is that this is not merely an abortifacient. Many, there's many uh, possible contraceptives that have the possibility of being abortifacient in the properties. You just don't know because it's so, so early on. That's not exactly what RU-46 is. RU-46 is when you know there's a baby. You have to miss your second period. So the child's fairly well developed, but the way it works is it attacks the woman's body first, and it tells her mm. stop producing any health. It's a very powerful artificial hormone. Let no health go to your uterus. And what happens is, is the woman's body is drastically altered in and of itself, and then all nutrition to the child is cut off. That child is fairly well along. Again, you have to miss two periods in order to take it. So this is an insidious, insidious drug. Right now you have to have a physician authorize it, but by its very nature, there's no doctor around when it starts kicking in, and that's the problem. And very often it needs an additional dose of methoprestol, which causes the woman's uterus to, to, it, to completely eject anything there, which, of course, is the baby. It's very bloody. It's very unpleasant. The women I know that have gone through it, they never want to go through that again. But this is becoming very common. And unless people understand what's really at stake, um, this, is, this is their way around public opposition to abortion clinics. They want to simply hand out the drugs. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. It is growing. In fact, probably what was the numbers I saw, that nearly a third of the abortions uh, now are being done through these, quote, medical abortions, supposedly medicine. I don't know how you can call it medicine, but they're calling it medical abortion because it's medicine that kills that baby. So it's, um, it's something that individuals need to be aware of, just how common this has become and how dangerous this drug is. Yeah, you're essentially forcing a, a miscarriage here, which at the end of the day is what it really is, and to understand that in a chemical fashion, the damage that obviously takes place to the child, but what it does to the mother's body, and yet mm -hmm. we're not hearing any information about significant studies being done, or research to look into the long-term effects, none of that. 
and it, it's all kind of part of the, the, the death culture in which we live. And as Brian Johnston points out, we need to be aware of what's going on. You can certainly find a good starting place to do that each and every week at 11 a.m. on Life Matters, a weekly program hosted by Brian Johnston, where he gets to unpack many of these key issues affecting issues of concern for pro-life people everywhere and it's not just a matter of uh, the issue of abortion really the broader question of of valuing life from cradle to grave and uh, we invite you to check that out again saturday mornings at 11 a.m life matters here on kfax more information at californiaprolife.org that's californiaprolife.org our thanks to brian johnston with the national right to life committee for that update 605, speaking of updates, let's get you one on traffic.